Welcome to Sierra Week Conversations, a new video and podcast series bringing you insights with impact into energy, economics, and a changing world in the COVID-19 era. I'm your host, Dan Jurgen. Very pleased today to be talking with Ben Van Buren, the CEO of Royal Dutch Shell. We'll be talking about operating in the COVID era, uh, about the oil and gas markets and energy markets after uh, COVID, and also about Shell's uh, plans and ambitions to be a net zero carbon company by 2050. So we have a lot to talk about. And Ben, welcome to the conversation. Thank you for being here again, Ben. Ben, maybe I'll start by just asking, was the oil and gas industry prepares for many contingencies. Was a pandemic in the planning for the industry? Uh, That's a good question, actually. It... uh... Um, I was reflecting only recently that that I remember from probably the SARS days that we had pandemic very clearly in our in our risk matrix, but I think we uh, we looked at it much more from a business continuity perspective. Uh, and yes, I would say we have prepared for a pandemic or for disruption at the scale that we are seeing at the moment. Uh, very much successfully also from a business continuity perspective. But of course, it was always going to be difficult to assess uh, what was going to happen to the economy. And and for that, I believe, um, we were not prepared. It's certainly not uh, in the sort of short notice that this pandemic then um, washed over us. So how how have you reorganized work to run a global business? Well, it's uh, a lot of things are, of course, fundamentally different, and but a lot of things also haven't changed really. It, of course, we, we tend to focus a little bit on, you know, the offices are closed, and people are working from home, and we now are even more reliant on IT, and and we feel good about the fact that it all works, and it does. It uh, uh, we have thousands, tens of thousands of people, of course, in back offices doing all the operational activities that keep the company going. And, and that has worked remarkably well. But the other thing, of course, you have to bear in mind is that uh, most of our people work actually in facilities. And, of course, our facilities haven't shut down. They are integral to uh, to the working of the economy. Uh, and therefore, uh, we have probably have had to put at least as much attention on how do we continue to operate our facilities well, how do we look after our staff, uh, and that, uh, of course, has been a major challenge as well. But also that has worked. And uh, and credit uh, to everybody in the company and around us who has made that, a, as far as I can tell, a very, very uh, resounding success. So in terms of the operating the facilities, has there been certain governing principles that you have used to make those facilities work and keep people safe? Yeah, of course, uh, we have facilities in so many different countries. And then, of course, it's not just the upstream facilities or our refineries or our um, uh, chemical plants, LNG plants, it's ships that move around the world. It's, of course, retail facilities, of which we have an awful lot. Uh, so you, you have to follow the, uh, the rules of the country in which you operate. Uh, and we followed a quite a shall we say, um, uh, sort of global structure uh, that we tend to use for crisis management. Uh, but, of course, it's just like a little bit of a slow burn crisis. But where we remain very much coordinated across the company, very much trying to understand what to learn from one country, apply in the next country, how you use uh, also the uh, uh, the local context to uh, to maximum effect. 
um, lots of measures being taken, as you can imagine, to the social distancing and how you make sure that everything is safe, what you do if you have an infection. Uh, and I think that part has all, uh, as I said, worked, uh, worked quite well. The biggest worry I had then, to be perfectly honest, um, was how do you actually keep facilities running for a long time without the quite detailed oversight that we tend to have over the operations? So how do you make sure that our technical controls, management of change, permit to work, um, um, license and permitting conditions, et cetera, do not gradually deteriorate without us actually being on top of it all the time. But also there, I am, I'm very, very hard in that so far we haven't seen anything slip or erode. So that must have been, uh, I mean, you obviously had to develop new processes or, or new ways of communicating to, to assure uh, those operations. Yeah. Um, so, and sometimes it is, of course, as shall we say, high level as how do you do an audit on a facility if you can't visit it anymore? Uh, and a lot of the focus then needs to go to well, doing a few things, of course, virtually off or offline, but putting more focus on the first and second lines of defense for verification and audit on the facility itself. But you also have the challenges, of course, that many of our um, operations that involve, say, for instance, specialists traveling in or, uh, or special expertise being involved, uh, it has to be redone in a different way. In some cases, it can't be done. But in many cases, we found that actually you can do an awful lot virtually if there is really no alternative. And in many cases, we have found out that it actually works just as well or maybe even better. Oh, better. That's interesting. <laughs> well, um, imagine you imagine you are on a um, uh, on a facility very far away, the other side of the world. You have to have a a person fly in uh, for um, some issue that you have. Uh, that person may be on their way for a day, uh, look at things, go back, uh, sort of work things out with, with their office. But now, all of a sudden, if you can do this. Uh, with cameras, with robots, with, with online uh, sort of verification, with actually a team back home to oversee what is happening. Sometimes you find that uh, actually that's a superior way of uh, of bringing technical expertise in than the conventional uh, sort of physical visit type of way. Well, I guess one thing that will come out of this when it's over is kind of a, a reevaluation of what needs to of travel or not travel in terms of, you say, investment of days to get someplace, and should you just do it electronically? That's right. I think a lot of things will change. Uh, I'm sure you're going to ask me this question soon, but I will, uh, I will come to that. that change, but that I don't know. Uh, but it's fair to assume that things will work out differently uh, simply because um, the necessity of doing it differently actually has sort of led to a, a new invention, or uh, we find that this is superior, or now that we are doing it differently, we feel that we can uh, perhaps slim down an organization or take out costs more permanently. Um, and, uh, and therefore, there is also a bit of a silver lining in that respect. Yeah. So I heard you the other day say that one of the things that maybe has been taken for granted by many people is the remarkable resilience that this industry has shown in terms of uh, continue to operate and deliver the goods in this environment. And just, I was quite struck by your comment about that. Yeah, of course, it, uh, it, it's very remarkable if you think of it. A lot of people think of it in terms of the, um, uh, 
so financial resilience. And that is quite remarkable as well, by the way, Dan, if you just see how many companies, of course, have seen a very significant dent appear in their cash flow statement, uh, have to deal with uh, a lot of uh, uh, financial pressures, change investment programs around, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, that is a quite a remarkable demonstration of resilience in its own right. But I think the, the even more profound uh, aspect of it is that, uh, of course, we tend to operate a global supply chain that is incredibly interlinked, that relies on an awful lot of just-in-time management of hydrocarbons at a place where it's going to be needed or energy at a place where it is needed. And what we found that despite this massive disruption it has placed that has taken place in the whole logistics uh, chain, uh, everything has continued to, to work. Well, it worked uh, perhaps in a different way, but I do not believe anywhere in the world have we seen major shortcomings in the provision of, of energy or materials uh, that are needed in the supply chain. And that is uh, actually quite a remarkable achievement as well, if you consider how topsy-turvy yes. the market has been for months. One of the things that... Uh strikes me about that resilience uh, is the attitudes towards plastic uh, and how this crisis has changed it. In, in the, the book I just delivered to the, to the publisher, I write about a hospital operating room, how much of it depends upon plastic and, of course, for sanitation and health. And I, w- I just wonder if you felt a, a shift in the attitudes towards plastics because of the important role they play in terms of dealing with the COVID crisis. I think it. Um, you can intellectually make that case. I think uh, then that indeed the, the attitudes must have changed. People must have recognized and realized that uh, that surgical gowns, uh, um, uh, sort of high quality uh, medical equipment that is either flexible tubing made out of uh, advanced materials, uh, even ventilators, if you like, uh, a lot of these things, of course. Uh, very fundamentally rely on uh, plastics, uh, of course, quite a bit on durable plastics, but but of course also an awful lot of single-use plastics. Yeah, um, and it, uh, I think it's uh, well, if it would help to bring balance to the debate about, about plastic waste and the role of plastics in society, that would be good. Uh, I think we should not be uh, in some sort of uh, "told you so" mode that uh, you know we. We are somehow being vindicated. I do think the whole issue of plastic waste and bringing more circularity to the petrochemical industry is a valid one, and we should solve that. But the sometimes more militant or extreme view on it, like let it all go away because we didn't need it in the first place, hopefully that gets a little bit recalibrated with the experiences that people are going through at the moment. Right. Well, at some point, what we're going through will end. We don't know whether at this point, whether the second wave or the first wave continues. But is it too soon to have some thoughts about what energy markets, oil and gas markets will look like after this uh, crisis? I mean, what you and just your view of the oil market and the LNG markets today. I think it's probably too soon to say, well, this is now how it will look like. But I think there are a few things that we can probably um, speculate about or, or already observe uh, or take a, a view on. So um, I think everybody who believed that this was going to be a sharp V-type recovery, um, well, I think they are probably at least doubting whether that would be the case. Um, I've always said this is this has more uncertainty 
attached to it than I would like. So it's very hard to see uh, how this plays out, uh, but it's, it's most likely not going to be a V-shaped recovery. And I believe that that is what we are seeing at the moment. Of course, we are seeing a, uh, a resurgence of, uh, of motor gasoline, uh, particularly in those areas where people don't like to rely too much on public transport. Yes. And therefore, you will see a little bit more use of, uh, of, of personal transport. Uh, but on, in general, I would say um, energy demand, certainly mobility demand, will be lower. Uh, even when this crisis is more or less behind us. Will it mean that it will never recover? It's probably too early to say, uh, but it, it will have a, a permanent uh, knock um, for um, uh, well, uh, for years, I would, I would, I would think. Right. On gas, the same thing. I, I, I do believe that also the, uh, the knock that we have seen on, on gas demand is going to stay with us for some time. In the long run, it will, uh, gas, I still think has the, uh, the long-term potential to, to grow faster than any of the hydrocarbon uh, energy carriers that we have around. But so sort of it will be inevitably delayed because gas demand that we have missed out will not be made up. A, a building that wasn't warmed in the last yeah. winter will not be uh, warmed doubly the next winter. So that, that's obvious. Um, but at the same time, I also believe that um, um, that investments are um, uh, adjusted uh, either because of the sheer availability of cash, the affordability, uh, the risk aversion that uh, that uh, companies like ourselves will have for some time. Can can I really uh, go ahead with this investment program, or do I want to wait a little bit longer? So that has a balancing effect, obviously. Um, and I believe that particularly on the gas side, many of the investments that actually looked quite strong, uh, certainly say North American LNG projects, and now all of a sudden don't look as strong anymore. And uh, I would think that therefore, even though demand has been postponed, supply has been postponed in equal yeah. measure. So right. how will that all play out? And, and finally, balanced markets, it's always hard to make detailed predictions. Uh, but I, I do think that for a few years, we will see a resettling and a recalibration in which also consumer attitudes around travel, uh, around yes. uh, personal mobility, around stepping into an airplane again, uh, will also be a, a factor that we, that we should not discount. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I was just thinking as you were saying that uh, uh, the head of Shell almost exactly a century ago said it was the beginning of the century of travel. Now we'll see a century in which people will reevaluate travel in, in, in ways and, and do more electronically. So, Ben, you mentioned before about companies that focus on financial resilience. Uh, Shell has taken two big decisions in the last uh, uh, recent period. One was a significant cut in your dividend, and the second is uh, quite a big write down. Um, what how has that worked out? What's been the response of investors? Well, I think it, uh, of course, the, the write down uh, we have sort of pre announced. We are still working very much on what exactly uh, the write down amount is. We have until uh, the, the end of this month when we have our Q2 results. But as we normally give an update at the end of the quarter, we felt we had to, we had to highlight that something like this was coming and it still had a range. Uh, in it, it could be as much as $22 billion uh, post tax. So it, it will be a major, um, a major number. 
on that one, I think investors uh, understand that that if you indeed lower your outlook for oil and gas prices, refining margins particularly, uh, but also some other margins, that of course uh, some assets that were already under pressure in terms of their uh, their valuation on the balance sheet could be at risk of being impaired, and and that's what happened. I think uh, that that's. But not the only one. It's it's not a it's a normal, uh, shall we say, event. Uh, of course, the magnitude is not normal. But then, of course, the magnitude of the disruption and the reset is not normal either. Right. Uh, the fact that it's non-cash uh, is uh, is of course helpful. So people know that uh, that it may have all sorts of balance sheet effects, but it's not going to have an effect on the the operational coverage and the coverage of dividends, right. etc. The dividend was a big deal, and it, it was a big deal for everybody. It was a big deal for me as well. Um, it, that was uh, a, hard, a hard decision to come to. It's a very hard decision. It, and, of course, you could you could see, and maybe you have been one of the commentators as well, who talked about uh, a dividend a reduction that hadn't been done since World War II. It, there was a, well, a I, I, didn't, I observed that others did mention that, yes. Okay. Well, you know, it is a, it's, a, it's an iconic dividend. It was the largest dividend in the world. Uh, many people had commented on it uh, in, in years uh, before. Uh, and it's, of course, something that, you, you know, Dan, you, you don't do these things lightly. It, uh, no CEO wants to be the CEO that, that got the dividend. But then on the other hand, uh, if, you, if you are being hit by a crisis like this, if you are seeing that the uh, at risk is going to be the long-term financial resilience of the company, and if you see that even though you take very significant measures to uh, preserve the financial resilience of the company, huh? we took $5 billion out of our capital program, we take up to $4 billion out of our operating cost program, a few billion dollars of working capital. So here we are talking about $10 billion a year. If you then still see that uh, that carrying on with this dividend would mean ever more gearing, ever more net debt, or even further measures to, to slash the capital program, uh, to reduce the operating cost, and with it, of course, reduce capability as well. At some point in time, it, it actually also becomes an easier decision because I thought, and the board with me, by the way, and of course, this was a board decision. Uh, we felt that continuing a payout of close to $15 billion a year uh, would not serve uh, the long-term interests of these same shareholders. And you could even argue that it would not have been responsible to borrow that entire amount uh, and in the process, reduce the financial strength of the company. In the end, we know that this will pass. We don't know when and how. But what I do know that when it does pass, I want to emerge as a company which has its financial resilience intact and is well positioned for whatever it is that comes next. And we could only do that by taking the measures that we have taken. So let me ask you two questions that flow from that. One what has been the response of the investor community that, of course, as you said, followed the iconic dividend? And two, what are you going to do with the money? <laughs> well, let me let me take the second one first, uh, then, uh, because that question has been asked quite a few times. Uh, and, and let me just point out that we don't have the money. And uh, so it's, 
Uh, I've heard this so many times. You know, you now have $10 billion. What are you going to do with it? Well, this was $10 billion that we didn't have in the first place. So the only thing that, that I'm makes it easier. So, so the only thing that I'm not going to do with the $10 billion is borrow it. <laughs> so, it, that, but that's the only thing. It's not as if all of a sudden we have $10 billion lying around. We have $10 billion less debt as a result of this right. um, on an annualized basis. On the reactions, I think um, there's a few um, that uh, that would say, yeah, I, I get it. It's the, it's the right thing to do. We thought your dividend was too high anyway. Uh, you were not being rewarded for it. You could see this in your dividend yield. So uh, right on you to do it. And now actually the company has many more options. Right. I'll be honest, Dan, that's a minority. Um, there is a uh, there is also a minority that says uh, this is terrible. You should never have done this, and now I can never really trust you as a management again. That is a minority as well. And then there is a, a reasonably good group of people in the middle that uh, that on the one hand understands it, on the other hand didn't quite understand why did we have to do this in Q1, and why did we have to do a two thirds reduction in the dividend, and and I spent more time explaining and talking and listening uh, with investors uh, in the aftermath of that decision. And I think we had, uh, I think, a good calibration of uh, of appreciation on both sides of the debate. Um, and for me, it was quite simple. The moment you know, and we did know in March and April, that the dividend uh, was under a wide range of scenarios not going to be safe. I think it is not um, tenable to stand up in front of investors and to say, don't worry about the dividend. Right. Uh, that actually could be misleading you. The alternative of saying, well, I'm not so sure about the dividend is probably even worse right. uh, because you get punished and then you get punished again if you, in the end, have to reduce it. So the moment you know that this decision in a wide range of scenarios is inevitable, better deal with it. And you better deal with it also from a position of strength. If you reduce the dividend in order to preserve your financial uh, resilience, then you better do it when there is still uh, the maximum financial resilience to preserve. So I think there's more understanding of that now. Uh, now that we've had that sort of clarification and discussion. And of course, there's never been a disruption on this scale in this industry or really uh, you'd have to look for to a war for a disruption of the global economy like this. There's just there's no precedent in markets for this. Uh, that's right, Dan. And, and uh, for those people who were still relatively early on in the in the sort of appreciation of what this all means, there were quite a few people who said, well, Gosh, you know, by Q2, at least you know exactly what it is that you have to deal with. And then you either cut or you don't cut or do whatever you think you need to do, et cetera. Well, we are at the end of Q2. Right. And to be perfectly honest, I would like to challenge everybody or anybody who says, well, there's a lot of clarity now. Uh, I think we have no more clarity than we had in March. Right. And that's exactly what I uh, would foresee, uh, had foreseen. And that's why we thought deal with it when you know it's inevitable to deal with it. Right. And get it and get it done. And get it done. Um, yeah. Right. So clarity about the future. Uh, let me turn to the farther future. Uh, 
you gave an extraordinary speech in April 16th of this year in the middle of the crisis, talking about the crisis around COVID, but also talking about Shell's long-term ambition to be a net zero carbon company by 2050. That's a, it's a big ambition, as you said in the speech. Tell us how your thinking has evolved uh, to get you to, uh, to this point. Well, it's indeed it's a, it's a big ambition. Uh, it's um, it's a long way out, by the way. Uh, so, in addition to having an ambition on 2050, we've also sharpened the ambition that we have for 2035. And of course, as you may know, Dan, we we have short-term targets as well that are actually not ambitions; they're targets. Yeah, I can and, see that. You, uh, yeah. Salary is linked yeah. to uh, to that, uh, or remuneration is linked to that outcome as well. But um, well, we, we didn't sit there in January and said, well, um, it, now that we are in the middle of this pandemic, why don't we uh, look for some uh, entertainment and do something else? This was with us already, of course, for a long time. We had been thinking about where do we need to go to with the company? We had ambition set for 2035 and for 2050. Uh, we, we had been in dialogues with investors uh, and uh, with other um, uh, commentators in the company. Uh, who who felt that we that we needed to do more, and we ourselves also felt that we needed to make sure that that we were completely aligned with Paris. And in the process, that sort of uh, went maybe six or eight months ahead of that April announcement. Uh, I think we got a lot more personal clarity about what it would mean to be Paris compliant. First of all, we said we can't anymore be a, a two degree C uh, company. Uh, we have to be a one and a half degree C company. Um, and then we said, well, if you think about what one and a half degrees centigrade means, um, it, it actually comes down that you are uh, net zero um, by 2050. Actually, the world can probably be net zero by 2060, but if you are a European company, uh, so you you work in an advanced economy. Advanced economies need to be ahead of the curve uh, when it comes to carbon neutrality. So the EU setting a target uh, of uh, carbon neutrality by 2050, the UK, uh, we felt that we had to do something similar. And then you have to find out uh, how you're going to get there. And what we did is we, we looked very much at the uh, the work that uh, that was done by the IPCC, the one and a half degree. Uh, centigrade special report looked at all the uh, the curves and the uh, how the energy system needed to evolve, what needed to happen. Uh, we took the extremes away, the extremely positive or extremely negative views, or the, uh, the the views with sort of extreme technology solutions, and we came out with a pathway that actually reasonably well coincided with our own pathways, and said, well, you know. That is what we need to achieve. It, it means that we have to obviously be net zero on our own emissions. It means that we uh, have to reduce the carbon content of our energy products to be in line with what society needs to be by 2050, according to the IPCC one and a half degree special report. That meant a roughly two thirds reduction in carbon intensity of our product portfolio. And then of course, the whole world needs to be net zero. So we said that means that whatever carbon we still have in our energy mix needs to work with customers who can deal with that carbon. 
So customers that can either mitigate or customers that will rely on us to mitigate the emissions for them. And that's the famous scope. That's the famous scope three. Yes. Yeah. So in aggregate, uh, well, the scope three is also, of course, the carbon content in the products we sell. Yeah, because you know that that is going to um, uh, automatically result in, in principle carbon uh, or greenhouse gas production. But then actually mitigating that greenhouse gas production is one of the extra conditions that we put on our supply chain. So in other words, from the wellhead to the end use of all the energy products that we will be selling in 2050, there should be zero emissions. Zero emissions in our operations, zero emissions in the manufacture of the product, zero emissions associated with the energy product as such, and zero emissions on a net basis from its use. Um, I think that it is is indeed a a wide-ranging ambition, but I think it's the only way, in my mind, that a company like us can stand up and say, we are Paris compliant. So let me ask you, was there, was this an evolution you're thinking, or were there certain decisive moments when you said, you know, we've really got to pivot in this direction? I think it's a bit of both, I would say, Dan. uh, You may remember we were the first ones to come with a scope three commitment uh, or ambition for 2050. We were the first ones to have a net carbon footprint concept. I think at that point in time, it very much modeled it on what we thought would be a a less than two degrees C outcome. And what we also felt uh, when we laid it out for uh, for our investors and for the community, for the society in general, uh, we felt that it was uh, was difficult to get. It it took us quite a bit of time to explain what a net carbon footprint is and what about these scope three emissions. And at the time we said we would half the net carbon footprint of our energy products. And I think we um, we had quite a bit of uh, debate and also internal a bit of debate. How do we make sure that people really get it, that this is what a progressive company can and should do? And, and at some point in time in that discussion, I, I felt that we're not going to win the debate until we make a definitive statement that we want to be a net zero energy emissions business. Because a lot of the discussion was about this is an intensity metric, is an absolute metric, uh, what about the emissions of your customers, etc. And in the end, the only way to deal with it is to say zero is zero. It doesn't really matter how you right. uh, calculate it or how you ratio it or not ratio it. Absolute relative zero is zero. We want to be a company that is zero in terms of the emissions associated with its business. Can't be clearer than that. Of course, we have to still explain it all, but I believe um, there is a certain degree of finality to the commitment or the ambition that we have now made. If you say zero is zero, uh, what's, I mean, obviously over the last few years, there's been a real shift among investors. What's been the response of the investment community an engagement with the investment community with shells moving in this direction? I think in, in uh, on the whole, I would say positive, um, but um, there is quite a bit of a, a spread and a range of views out there. Uh, I do believe that investors are hampered by the fact that, of course, many companies have come with claims that they are Paris compliant, have their own ways of 
of demonstrating it or putting ambitions and targets and everything else out there. And there is therefore a certain degree of um, decoding that investors have to do. Is the shell claim the same as the claim of this company and who is better or worse or whatever? I think we have to help investors by, as an industry, being a lot more calibrated in our approach. So the more we can harmonize, the better it will be for investors to understand. I noticed that one thing you focused on is metrics, getting the metrics right, that, that there are too many different metrics floating around. That's right. That's right. And that I think unless we have done that, I think it will be very, very difficult for investors to, to really come up with a definitive view about what is good and what is bad or what needs more or less. Of course, there are some investors who think it's great. And, and that's exactly what we needed. And are now, of course, looking for all the proof points, how we would make that pivot in our investment program, in our product portfolio to actually deliver on this. So yeah, more low carbon electricity, biofuels, hydrogen, show me, let me see how you're going to do it. And then there are also on the other end of the spectrum, investors who believe that this is a recipe for value destruction. Uh, and these investors have to be convinced of a, of a different set of arguments, namely that you know, we, we, we can and we should have confidence that we can invest in these technologies and in these value chains of the future uh, while we still preserve the attractiveness of us as, a, as an investment. So uh, there, are two, there are two phrases that I notice occur in your remarks a lot. One is in step with society and the other is licensed to operate. And I think it'd be useful for you to just say those concepts seem to matter a lot in your thinking. Yeah, they do, uh, Dan. And, and a step in society, uh, again, that is quite often uh, uh, understood, but also sometimes uh, we, we draw criticism for it. Uh, uh, the criticism tends to come from those uh, at that end of the spectrum who believe that we should have a leading role. We should just do whatever we think is right, whether society is ready for it, yes or no. Uh, and of course, that doesn't work. You, you cannot, you can get a little bit ahead of your customers. You can, of course, try to bring your customers along. But ultimately, uh, if uh, your customers are not ready to take your products of the future, then uh, you have to pace your development accordingly. So does that mean that we can sit on our hands and say, well, whenever society is ready, we will be there on the day? No, I don't think so. I think we need to push and pull. And that's why we have very much focused our strategy going forward on a sectorial understanding. So what are the sectors of the economy needing to do to get to net zero? And what sort of business models and what sort of value propositions flow from that? And that will be our business and our value propositions. Right. Um, I, I want to come to those, but maybe just ask you a question about society, the yeah, society that you live in, which is young people, your own children. What, what are you hearing about, you know, the, kind of the, the next generation's view towards this industry? Well, I think the, uh, the societal license to operate is integral to the success. It's one of our three ambitions, but actually all these ambitions hang together. I do not believe you can be a successful company in terms of an investment case if society doesn't carry you or if you don't carry society. I do not believe you can have an energy transition where you want to be a company of the future if society actually sees you as a company of the past and doesn't 
doesn't buy it that a company like you should have a future. So therefore, uh, these things are, are integral to, to each other. And yes, indeed, society does have a critical view of our industry. Uh, quite often, of course, we can sit here and, uh, and, and bemoan ourselves and just say society is wrong on this and society doesn't see all the wonderful things we do and society doesn't understand how integral the provision of energy is to the lifestyle that they themselves are leading or at least aspiring to, et cetera, et cetera. But then my view is these types of bemoanings, if there is such a word, um, that, that don't really help. Uh, the reality is society indeed sometimes have a, has a somewhat simplistic view of our sector, our companies, the things that we do. And we have to just say, how do we change the narrative around us? And that doesn't mean that we have to be pedantic and say, you better listen up. It means if you have to deliver different types of proof points. Right. Well, let me just in the last few minutes we have ask you about the components of the uh, business. Clearly, you're going to remain in the oil and gas business. That's not going away. But how do you what are the new elements of the business that you're going to be in that will really move those goals along? Well, first of all, Dan, you're absolutely right. We we will be, uh, and maybe I should split it out. We will be in the oil business going forward. As a matter of fact, we believe that oil will have a, a very significant role to play for a long time to come, and that uh, profitable investments can be made in the oil sector. But it does mean that we're going to be even more selective on where it is that we want to put our money to work. We always had a an approach of value over volume. Uh, and now that is going to be even more a, a high grading of the quality type of discussion uh, going forward. So yes, we will be in the oil sector, but it will be, in my mind, it has to be the best oil company, if you like, that, that we can be on that path. I think gas uh, will continue to be a uh, an important sector going forward. And we, we do believe that that growth there is going to be with us for some time. And we do believe that gas is not just a bridging fuel, but also a destination fuel. And we believe that we have a lot of capability to offer, a lot of capability to uh, to, to also enjoy. Uh, and therefore, we will continue to invest in the growth of that sector for some time to come. At some point in time, it will peak as well, I would imagine, then, but that is a little bit further into the future. And then the other energy businesses. So think of electricity, think of biofuels, think of hydrogen, but also think of the, the other tools that we can have in a toolkit like nature to mitigate uh, the intrinsic carbon uh, footprint of our products or carbon capture and storage. Yes, these will be business opportunities for us as well, but they will be rolled very much in with a stronger focus on the customer, because I believe the energy system of the future is going to be an energy system where the value is created much closer to the customer than it is created closer to the resource. And therefore, a company with a strong brand, which we have, but also with the ability to integrate value propositions for customers uh, and to have a focus on the sectorial approach that I just mentioned. So really understanding in the different sectors of the economy, what are the energy needs and how do we create business opportunities out of it, I think is going to be the winning proposition going forward. So within those couple of elements and just to, you know, kind of pin them down a little bit, electricity 
do you have a clear view what you'll do in electricity or is that still evolving? No, no, no. I think that, that view is is uh, is conceptually and, and more than conceptually uh, quite clear. We want to be an, an integrated uh, power player. Uh, so that means that we need to be having positions in generation, uh, but also positions in the customer end and also positions in the middle. We believe it needs to be dominantly green and we believe that we need to integrate these positions uh, with the other energy factors that we have. Because in the end, again, the value is going to be had from integrating energy offerings at the customer end and being able to play a sophisticated arbitrage game when it comes to uh, electrons and molecules and, and, and other ways of, uh, of interacting between the different components of the energy ecosystem. We, we have a unbelievably good uh, capability when it comes to trading and optimization of our own networks. And I think that is going to be a key component to success uh, for us going forward, also in the power sector. Uh, and we believe that as that system evolves and needs to attract billions, hundreds of billions, if not trillions of dollars of investment. Trillions. Uh, that, trillions. Indeed. Uh, that investment is only going to come forward if indeed attractive returns are going to be made. I think we have a really good recipe for uh, playing and winning in that sector. And therefore, we want to not pass up on the biggest thing in energy in the future uh, that is going to be around, which is electricity. Well, of course, I mean, as you say, trillions of dollars. And one of the things that we're very interested in is, of course, the supply chains that have to be created. So there's a lot of opportunity for investment in that. There are two areas I want to ask you about investment and before we conclude. One is... Um, Four or five years ago, hydrogen was sort of out there on the periphery. Hydrogen has really become a very central part of the discussion now. Why is that? Um, I think hydrogen is, uh, of course, um, I remember when we started up Shell Hydrogen in the late 90s, uh, we thought it was about to take off as well. And we were, we, we were sort of almost congratulating ourselves that we got this one right in terms of timing. And then, of course, here we are uh, more than 20 years later, and it's, again, just about to take off. You're right. So it is it is tough to call these things right, and it, it takes a tremendously long time, Then I don't have to tell you that, you know, getting from the first commercial application of a technology to it being 1% of the energy mix tends to take 25 years in our sector, something that, of course, a lot of people overlook. But it's a pretty reliable uh, development statistic. I think for hydrogen, uh, yeah, maybe things are different at this point in time. I, I do think that technology has uh, evolved uh, quite a bit. I think the concept of green hydrogen is starting to come within reach. I think um, governments are really wisening up to the idea that, that many of the energy transition plays that they have in mind, hydrogen needs to play an integral role because it's not all going to be electrification. We will have to have some molecules for, say, a very heavy duty uh, mobility demand or for high temperature heat or even for space heating uh, that can be done quite efficiently with hydrogen. So I do believe policymakers are beginning to see the, the need for this. And I'm beginning to see also the role that hydrogen will play as a storage component, a long-term transportation component, et cetera, et cetera. Does it mean that hydrogen will be the next big thing in the next five years? I don't think so. 
But I do believe that those companies who set themselves up to succeed in that area and can make the right type of investments and can, again, seed and develop the hydrogen markets of the future are going to be the long-term winners. And we have every intention to be just that. So does Shell Hydrogen still exist or has it been reborn? It has been reinvented a few times, but it, right. uh, but it is very much alive and kicking. And I would like to say that even though we are, of course, not the largest hydrogen company in the world, uh, that is very much you know what industrial gas companies uh, are. But in terms of hydrogen for mobility or hydrogen for other uh, uses than just the, shall we say, refining or petrochemical or industrial use, we are indeed amongst the leading, if not the leading player. Right. It's small, uh, but it's nevertheless a position of leadership uh, that we are maintaining and that we want to build out as much and as fast and as reliably as we can. So I'd like to ask you about one new cutting-edge technology that's very much at the future that you mentioned. It's called nature. And you mentioned nature as, a, as, as part of the package. What, is, what does that mean? Yeah, I think it's, you know, we know that one way or other, um, by the time we get to 2050 or 2060, whatever time frame you want to call for this, and we want to be as uh, as a planet uh, to be carbon neutral, we know that there, there will have to be some mitigation of emissions as well. Uh, of course, some segments of society believe that we can get to being zero by just eliminating all carbon from the energy system. In reality, um, that most people, including the IPCC for that matter, and everybody who has studied the energy system understands that there will still be a proportion of carbon in the energy system. So one way or other, we will have to deal with that. You can deal with it if it is a large stationary um, um, source of greenhouse gases. You can capture and sequester and do things like this, hopefully even use the uh, the carbon. But the more diffuse ones, huh? think of air travel, we still will have carbon in the air travel mix by 2050, is my prediction. We will have to find other ways of capturing that. Okay, the idea of direct air capture and, and having large mechanical facilities doing that is, is interesting. And I think we should work on that. And I do believe there is scope for that. Uh, but we should not forget that our planet, of course, has invented uh, a much better, more durable system, which is called trees. Right. <laughs> and, but it all needs to be trees or whether it can be something else. And there's many different ways in which nature can capture and sequester carbon. Um, I, I do believe uh, there is a major role for that part of that. It will be difficult uh, because, again, uh, people can, can, with justification, ask themselves, how reliable is it? Is all the carbon that's going to be sequestered in, in nature? Is it going to stay re- uh, sequestered? Uh, how, do I, how do I rely on these companies doing the right thing? Uh, is there enough sequestration capacity on this planet? And if there isn't one, who should actually use this? Should this be used by agriculture or can industry use it? And these are all real issues that we need to address. But we cannot wait for them to be resolved before we start using nature. And that's why we are just moving ahead. Right. Well, as a last question, let me just uh, ask you that we're in a period now when the word unprecedented has taken on new meaning in this COVID era. I wanted to ask you just about the response of all the people around the world who work for Shell how you've seen them cope with the situation and, and continue to uh, do their jobs and contribute to their communities. 
Oh, thanks, Dan. That's a really important question as well, because I do believe that the the response of our company, and I, I realize um, we're not the only company who can make claims like this, but I happen to be the CEO of Shell. The response of people in our company has been absolutely fantastic. And uh, whether I talk about uh, our ability to keep everything going, uh, our ability for the organization to step up in a different way in working with colleagues and to make sure that colleagues are looked after, uh, are given allowance, are uh, being brought in, uh, are being helped in whatever way that they need support and help is actually incredibly inspiring. And then on top of it, what we've also seen is that everybody has gone above and beyond the call of duty to also reach out into their communities. How do we make the most of this crisis uh, as human beings uh, with with some of the resources of the company behind them? So I think um, hats off to our employees. Uh, They are the the biggest source of inspiration that I've had uh, over the last months. Um, And I'm incredibly proud uh, as to what we have achieved through our employees. So a big thank you to all of them. Well, thank you. Thank you very much, Ben, for this uh, very wide-ranging conversation. We've covered a lot of ground, and we appreciate the opportunity to be with you. Thank you, Dan. Thanks again for tuning in to another Sierra Week conversation presented by IHS Market. For the complete video series and previous episodes, visit us online at sierraweek.com. 